From the Freedom HealthWorks Network, this is Healthcare Americana. This week's show features Adam Habig, co-founder and president of Freedom HealthWorks. Everything else we buy and consume and use, transportation, food, shelter, you name it, clothing, rose about 60%. Over the same period of time, the average cost of a hospital stay rose 500%. As insurance forced the prices up within healthcare, the consumers, the patients, the, the American people looked at that price increase and thought, holy cow, I am absolutely exposed if I don't have health insurance and I need to get more health insurance and force more of my health care through that construct. You see what I'm talking about? It feeds the cycle. Prices go up and up and up and up and there's no end. And now, here is your Healthcare Americana host, Christopher Habig. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Healthcare Americana, the podcast where we explore what healthcare really means. I'm your host, Christopher Habig, and today back in the studio is Adam Habig, president and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. Nice to have you back. Hello again to our thousands of loyal listeners. It's wonderful to be back on the air. It was only a couple of weeks ago since we did our intro episode, and so it's always uh, nice to circle back and talk about something uh, today that is of deep, passionate interest uh, to us in a business sense, healthcare in the United States. And obviously, with a company called Freedom HealthWorks and with the podcast called Healthcare Americana, it's something that we deal with on a daily basis. Um, trying to educate people, trying to educate physicians, trying to show them that there's a better way to do this. So in today's episode, uh, I wanted you back to take a deeper dive um, and and help walk our listeners through what healthcare in these United States has become relatively recently over the past few decades. Well, let's start at the beginning because every good story has a beginning. And I hate to go too far back, but frankly... The, the start of our current headaches with healthcare began uh, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy with the bombing of Pearl Harbor, which drew the United States into World War II. And I start all the way in, back in World War II because it was the wage controls imposed during the war that really provoked a lot of employers to start offering this new thing called health insurance to their workers as a way to get around the cap on wages and attract talent in a very uh, scarce talent market with our boys away at war. So it starts there. And fast forward the period between 1945 and I believe 1965. And the United States as a whole went from something like 22% of Americans had health insurance to 75% insured over those 20 years. And if you were uh, paying attention today to the pundits, you'd say, well, that was a wonderful development. That's fantastic. And yes, that's one, that, that is good to see health insurance growing like that. But the problem is alongside that growth in health insurance was this notion, this mentality that took hold that health care is the same as health insurance. And that's a that's a great distinction to make and something that we tell everybody we talk to. Just because somebody has a great insurance plan doesn't mean they're going to be able to get in to see their doctor or even know a doctor or even have seen a doctor in the past five years. But they say, hey, I got this great insurance policy. Well, what does that really mean? Is health insurance a care item or is it more of a financial tool in this sense? Uh, health insurance, any kind of insurance, is nothing more than a financial instrument. It's not health care. 
It's a financial instrument that protects against large unforeseen expenses. So uh, when you have um, homeowner's insurance or auto insurance, you're not using that uh, every time you go to Home Depot or every time you fill up your, your car right at the, at the gas station. You're using that for the unforeseen events that would be catastrophically ruinous in terms of a financial burden for you. The problem is with the growth in health insurance and the uh, really the way that this mentality eclipsed uh, the mentality that really is is prevalent in every other industry except healthcare, that insurance is reserved for those those rare catastrophic events. For some reason in healthcare, it, it wasn't that way. People began to look to their health insurance as the uh, sole provider of any sort of healthcare need they might have. So you mentioned earlier that before World War II, before Pearl Harbor, health insurance as we know it didn't really exist. What were they doing before? Healthcare as an industry, and I like the word industry better than system, but it resembled other types of industries. There was a, a robust uh, free marketplace. And again, we're talking 80 years ago, so you have to adapt for technology. I understand that. But I think what happened, what, what went sideways in the, in the post-World War II era, and then what accelerated since then, was that the notion of a, a free marketplace where buyers and sellers of services in this case, medical services, uh, were free to exchange those voluntarily to allow prices to drift down to their, their natural equilibrium when it comes to any other marketplace. It's supply and demand 101. And I know some people really hate to look at healthcare like any other industry, but in the end, you have to because there are limited uh, supplies of the goods and services that, that make up what we call healthcare. And therefore, the, the market economy, which has been so effective at allocating those resources in every other industry. I mean, mm-hmm. think about the way, you know, different technologies were once absolutely cost prohibitive. And with competition, the price came down and, and more and more people had access to those technologies. And that was purely through the, the genius, the invisible hand of the free market. Those forces are the ones that have been missing from healthcare since we made this detour post-World War II, where health insurance became synonymous with healthcare. Yeah, and that's that's a great point because a lot of critics of quote unquote a free market industry within healthcare will cite things like, "Hey, when you're unconscious on a sidewalk, you can't make the decision to purchase services from Hospital B and not Hospital A." Sure, and I would counter that that situation in an emergent situation is exactly why we have this thing called health insurance, but. That is in a far smaller minority of cases when it comes to healthcare consumption in this country. Most healthcare is consumed by a, a patient who has full knowledge of what they're doing and the choice they're making and the doctor they're choosing and the medication they're choosing. It, it's very rare that the emergent case where you have an unconscious patient that really can't make that decision. It always seems like it's the exception and not the rule that gets everybody's attention, especially sure. these days when everybody has a microphone. How about that? Um, so you, you mentioned in that case um, a use for insurance for unforeseen accidents, things that you can't really plan for. So it has a purpose. So back to what we were talking about earlier, where did this notion that health insurance equals health care come from? And who are the major parties, in your opinion, that were really responsible for this modern take on what Healthcare, health insurance, and health coverage really is. 
I think a couple of things drove this this mentality that we're stuck with today. And if you go back to the the period I cited, the 20 years following World War II, when there was this massive explosion in in terms of the percentage of Americans that had health insurance, over that same period, the prevailing prices in the economy rose by about 60%, which is par for the course when it comes to inflation over a 20-year period, I believe. 60% rise in prices, 500% rise in the average cost of a hospital day. Wow. So say that again, just for emphasis. Yeah. Prevailing prices in the marketplace, everything else we buy and consume and use, transportation, food, shelter, you name it, clothing, rose about 60% over the same period of time, the average cost of a hospital stay rose 500%. I bring that up because that shows the impact of a market that is corrupted by health insurance being used as the currency to purchase the goods and services in that market. And when you ask how did this come to be and who are the players today, there are some a few major players in what we have now today called the third-party payer system, mm-hmm. which is it, it's very inefficient. Anyone who's an economist would tell you that is one of the, the, the worst ways to buy anything because you've separated the, the purchaser and the seller of something from the actual third party who's paying the bill. Now think about that. That is a recipe for nothing but absolutely skyrocketing costs, poor to mediocre quality, because let's face it, the actual consumer of the service is neither paying for it, nor are they really accountable from a cost standpoint to the seller of that service. It's, mm-hmm. it's just a highly inefficient way for any sort of market to operate. And in healthcare, you know, we drifted into this notion that health insurance pays for everything. The costs skyrocketed, like I talked about, and it's a self-fulfilling cycle because when the costs skyrocket, people look at the price of healthcare and think, holy cow, I trip and fall down a stairway and blow my knee, and now it's a $30,000 repair. I have to have health insurance. I'm absolutely reliant on health insurance to walk out my door every day. Absolutely. And if, if that cost were more akin to a free market system, where the cost of that, that knee repair instead of being $30,000 was more like oh, $3,000, like it is in some of the free market uh, surgical centers that we know. Well, that's still a lot of money, but it's not cost prohibitive that it's ruinous if something were to, go, to happen to you, you know, tomorrow walking out your front door. So the, the lesson there is, as insurance forced the prices up within healthcare, the consumers, the patients, the, the American people looked at that price increase and thought, holy cow, I am absolutely exposed if I don't have health insurance and I need to get more health insurance and force more of my health care through that construct. You see what I'm talking about? It feeds the cycle. Prices go up and up and up and up and there's no end. Well, I think an interesting side effect of that too, and this is a little bit counterintuitive as you're saying this, it kind of dawned on me that as prices continue to increase, people looking for health care stopped shopping around. Absolutely. Now, I, that doesn't make any sense to me because if I'm looking at this and saying, two years ago, this knee operation was $3,000 and now all of a sudden it's $30,000, well, I'm just going to look around and see if that's going to be the case everywhere. Instead, it sounds like healthcare consumers said, hmm, I don't really care. I got my insurance company over here. Hey, guys, you go ahead and pay it and I don't care what you do. I'm not going to shop around. I'm not going to look for a better deal. Whatever. I'll probably make it back and up in premiums. Um, that are going to go up anyways. I've seen this called the evil genius of health insurance because you socialize costs like that. A knee repair. Say the knee repair does indeed cost $31,000. That's the price of a new car. When you're not exposed, though, to that price, if, you're, if your cost at the point of care 
is much lower than that, you don't have any incentive to shop around. And many insurance uh, uh, policies, many, many coverages are structured so that you don't have any incentive to try to save money. It's the same old conundrum. If you go out to dinner with a bunch of friends, say 10 of you go out to dinner, and you decide up front, we're going to split the bill 10 ways. Every single person at that table is incentivized to order the most expensive thing on the menu. Think about it. And that's not, again, there are, there are breaks on the system. I get that. There are things like deductibles, which aren't necessarily good, um, that do you know, compel people to make uh, certain cost-saving decisions. But the point is, because we look to our health insurance as the, the primary vehicle to purchase all of our health care today, for the most part. Now, this is changing. But because that's the prevailing attitude in America, uh, we have the system that we, that we are uh, faced with today. Yeah, you brought up an interesting point about deductibles there, too. I like to use the term functionally uninsured <laughs> when discussing the vast majority of patients in the U.S. And by functionally uninsured, what I mean is you might have a great insurance policy, but you don't have enough money in the bank to cover your deductible in case you walk outside and fall down the stairs. How does that impact someone's decisions when they're even shopping for healthcare, looking for a doctor, trying to figure out what's going on when they have an insurance policy, they're paying premiums, yet they can't even activate their coverage because they can't afford a deductible. Yeah, and, and the idea of a deductible is one that is prevalent in all insurance, so it's not limited to healthcare. But it has this this perverse effect in healthcare where you're almost discouraged as a patient from seeking out the care you actually need in a preventive sense. Uh, hey, I'm not feeling so great. Uh, yeah, I, I should go to the doctor, but I'm not sure I need to because it's going to cost me um, something that, that is not covered by my health insurance. So I'm going to get, until I hit my deductible, I'm paying all of it. So it has this, this, like I said, perverse effect of discouraging that sort of care, which is exactly the kind of care we need more of in this country. But when then that problem, because you didn't get it taken care of early, metastasizes into something bad, and you have this massive hospital cost, $100,000 hospital bill, well, at that point, maybe you're only paying the $3,000 deductible. So again, it's like buying the $100,000 sports car, and you're like, I'm only exposed to the first $3,000. Yeah, I'll, I'll take it. Thanks. You know, I don't care what the rest of it is. Throw me costs. the keys. That's my point. So deductibles are, while they have uh, a, uh, an impact on decision-making, and especially in other types of insurance, in healthcare, they actually um, can be many times a, a negative uh, drag on, on efficient decision-making. Anyways, that's my take. You asked, again, why or who the players are, to, to go back to that. And, and, and one reason you know, that healthcare, or health insurance, I should say, is structured the way it is, um, the, the main players today in healthcare, you've got obviously the, the patients, the consumers who are consuming the care. You've got the, the providers, even though that, that term is, is misused, but you have the doctors and clinicians and hospital systems and folks who are providing these services. And then you've got the payors. And mainly those are your commercial insurance carriers and um, the government in large sense, CMS, right? So you, you bring up CMS seemingly, if the, if the industry is such a mess and there's so many convoluted ways um, that people are interacting with it, with third-party payers, with hospitals, with physicians, with patients, nobody knows what's going on. Nobody can find prices. Nobody knows what the cost of it is. We have some people saying, well, can't there be more government involvement? Won't regulations come and save the day? But the government's not innocent 
in this game of creating the system that we have today? No. Um, they are one of the major players in this system, which means they've had a major hand in creating it. And I say they, I, I mean the general sense politicians. The problem with that, <laughs> I'll read you a quote. And this is from Democrat Senator Tom Daschle, a uh, former uh, senator. Congress is just not capable of being the manager of a healthcare system, and yet it's largely Congress today that has that responsibility. It has not worked for the past 50 years. It'll work even less in the next 50. You think about that. Here's a senator that recognizes that, and he's part of you know, the group that made these decisions that put us where we are. I, I think the, um, you know, when you talk about regulations, there are, there's certainly a place for regulation, especially within healthcare. Um, regulations are supposed to protect consumers, make markets function more efficiently, ensure you know, legal dealing between parties. That's the good side. The bad side of regulation, they serve to restrict supply artificially of things we need, like healthcare. You took a look at licensure laws, and licensure is great if you'd like to, if it functions to ensure that a provider of a, of a certain service has met minimum qualifications. Licensure is bad when it is used as a, as a gatekeeper to an industry. So today, for instance, we talk about the physician shortage that's looming. Well, a lot of that is driven by the fact that the powers that be artificially set the number of residency slots below what the population needs in order to maintain uh, some degree of shortage. Now, I'm not saying it's, it's a bunch of guys sitting in a dark room somewhere deciding these things, but it's just the double-edged sword of regulation. Yes, you need it for consumer protections, and, and it should be used to help markets function more efficiently and better for the consumer, not to artificially restrict supply or, in the case of politicians, to score political points. And that's what we see <laughs> many, many times that in, the, in this, this, you know, yeah. this, this, this narrative that's been our healthcare industry for the last 50 years is that so many times you have politicians that get involved simply to score political points with their constituents and win votes. Got to keep the voters back home happy. At the expense of the system, unfortunately. It's an interesting conundrum, absolutely. So let me ask you this as, uh, as the last question here today. Where have real practical solutions been, and why haven't we seen any progress? I'll take those out of order. I'll answer the second okay. question with one word, $3.5 trillion. That's our annual spend on healthcare in this country. As an industry, as a total. Uh, that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And there are a lot of people, a lot of players, some of the folks we mentioned within the insurance world, within the mega hospitals, within government bureaucracies that have no interest in seeing that money disappear. I think it was Rick Scott, the former governor of Florida, who ran a, um, a hospital company before he became governor. And in reaction to cost cutting in healthcare, he said, what business or organization would voluntarily accept a 50% reduction in their revenue? Think about it. There's a lot of uh, momentum to, to keep the system we have perpetuating the inefficiencies that it produces. And of that $3.5 trillion, estimates are as high as $1 trillion is spent on care that is not necessary, that's duplicative, that's wasteful or overpriced. So that's why, in my mind, solutions have been slow to emerge. There's a lot of headwind when it comes to that. Now, to answer your question, we have seen solutions emerging. And these are typically like the green shoots of innovation that emerge just outside the areas that regulation fences them out. So when you look at the health insurance world and you say, wow, insurance has done nothing but spike in cost year after year after year. Employers are tired of it. Individuals, consumers are tired of it. And you look at what motivates people. 
and insurance companies, the big four insurance companies are no different in their motivations. They have to charge their customers more because they're limited by the ACA, by Obamacare, in terms of what percentage of their revenues they can actually claim as profits. So when you have motivations that are like that, that are completely counter to this notion of trying to cut costs within healthcare, you see no improvement. Where we're seeing that, that innovation emerge, though, is not at that level. It's around the edges. So, for instance, the emergence of health sharing. That's been a, a tremendous help for so many people, for millions of people now who have found this a great alternative to the, the health insurance marketplaces that have priced them really, uh, as you said, out of business with their functionally uninsured deductibles. Mm-hmm. In, in direct primary care, something near to our hearts, you know, we've seen the physician community embrace a, an alternative to what they've uh, only, the only system they've known for the past 40 years, which has been one where they must obey the insurance company in order to get paid. And now they're, they're actually going back to serving patients and finding that patients are, are wildly enthusiastic about that. So that's where you're seeing innovation emerge. And I think we're going to see more of that in the near future. That's good to hear. That's, a, that's exciting. And it gives everybody a, a sense of hope. So let's, let's hope it's not a, a false sense of hope in those regards. But there's some very smart people out there, and it seems like things could be turning, turning for the better and make it easier on all of us to purchase healthcare services, get great quality access to wonderful physicians, wonderful facilities, know the cost up front, know what we're getting into. And hopefully, again, hopefully, that is a trend that continues in the near future. I agree. Well, as we wrap up, um, I think we'll make this a part two. Let's call this one part one because you had some very interesting takes on where government involvement comes. And I want to make sure that we spend some time discussing what that means within a broader scope. So it's going to do it for part one today. I did notice that you brought a book in. You want to talk about the recommended reading list uh, if anybody wants to learn more about what we talked about here today? Sure. I might save some of this for part two. But um, if you've not heard of the book called Overcharged by Charles Silver and David Hyman, Fantastic read that strips away the veneer of the uh, a lot of the political pundits who tend to use healthcare as a political football punching bag just to score points. This looks at why we have this this healthcare in- industry today that is so overpriced and and so inefficient. In fact, the tagline of this book is "Why Americans Pay Too Much for Healthcare." So again, that's called overcharged. Fantastic read. If uh, it's dense, it's packed with stats. So, uh, but it does talk about. A lot of what we've, we've summarized today, how we got to this point, it brings in other types of, of elements like the pharmaceutical industry and how those types of, of ancillary type uh, players factor in. But yeah, it's a great read. All right. Well, that's going to do it for part one of this two-part uh, episode, Exploring Healthcare in America. Adam Habig, president of Freedom HealthWorks, thanks for coming in to talk with us today. Thanks, Chris. Enjoyed it. I'm your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for tuning in to Healthcare Americana. And a reminder to subscribe and share on any type of platform that you're listening to us out there. Until next time, see you. Thank you for listening to Healthcare Americana. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podchaser, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And tell your friends and colleagues to download and listen to all Healthcare Americana shows at freedomhealthworks.com. 